This sermon is from Edgewood Baptist Church. You can find more information about us online at ebc-edmonds.org. Thanks for listening. being raised in the gay and lesbian community and my mother really didn't want to pay for babysitters when I would go and stay with her and her partner. She would end up taking me with her to some of the gay bars, to the gay clubs. I mean just imagine for a second a five, six or seven year old kid in his pajamas over in the corner while everybody's singing to YMCA or some other song like that and I'm coloring and I, and I, I get to experience this and this just becomes a natural part of my culture, of my world view. However, I did notice that there were some people that thought it was wrong and they were Christians. And, and from my viewpoint, all I could imagine and all I could think was that Christians hated gay people. Christians hated people that were different from them this one time I was marching in this gay pride parade and it, and it was definitely very very prideful I mean I saw things there that I haven't seen since and at the end of the parade everybody was hanging out and everybody was getting some refreshments and there was this group and their leader and all of their people had buckets of urine and they put hoses in the urine and they were spraying them on everybody in that parade saying this is what Jesus Christ thinks about you I was blown away. I, I didn't know what to think. And I looked at my mom and I said, Mom, why are they acting like that? And she said, well, Caleb, they're Christians. Christians hate gay people. There was this one guy named Lewis, and he was a big, strong Evander Holyfield, Mike Tyson-looking guy. What I didn't know is that Lewis only had a few months to live because he had moved from HIV to contracting AIDS. My mother and I went to go see him probably about a week before he died. And we walked in the room, and back in the 80s, they really didn't understand AIDS. They didn't understand how to deal with this. And so they had this huge room, and they, and they put him over in the corner. And, and so imagine the scene with me. He is shivering under like nine blankets. But over in the corner, backed up against the wall, like they were waiting for a firing squad to come, like they were trying to get away from him and make themselves part of the wall, was his family with their big KJV Bibles open. And he would ask for something to drink, and they'd give it to him real quick, and they'd be sure not to touch him. And I looked at my mom, and I'm just a kid, and I say, Mom, why are they, why are they treating Lewis like this? And she said, well, Caleb, they're Christian, and they hate gay people. And I went over, and I gave Lewis a hug, and I said, goodbye, my friend. I walked out of that room and I said, Mom, I never want to be a Christian. I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus because it seems like if, if you belong to Jesus, then, then you hate gay people. And, and what I didn't realize that I had come to believe at that point is that if you were a Christian, it meant that you didn't like anybody that wasn't a Christian or wasn't like you. So imagine this, big surprise, by the time I got to my high school career, my worldview was messed up. And I got invited to this Bible study and there's this guy uh, who was leading it uh, named Joe Weiss. And he was a youth pastor at a local church, so I went to go hear him. 
And then I went to go hear his dad. I found out that his dad was a campus pastor at the University of Missouri. So I went to go hear him. And, and really what I wanted to do, my plan was to be a ninja Christian. I would act like I was a Christian, but I really wasn't. And I would go to the Bible study and I would end up opening up the Bible and, and just learn about the Bible. And then I would dismantle their faith. I had no idea what I was up against. And before I knew it, I ended up giving my life to Jesus. One of the things that I appreciate about Roy and his sons, Joe and John, and some of the other people that were influential in my life during that time was, number one, they did not treat me like I was different. They treated me like I was a normal person. They answered my questions and they didn't make me feel like a moron. They didn't try to get me to a certain point and then love me and then accept me. They loved me where I was. And here's what I learned real quick. Jesus was not like the people spraying urine on others in the parade. He's not the guy holding up signs on the street corner. Jesus is not the guy who is pressed up against the wall not wanting to touch an AIDS patient, not wanting to hug somebody who's a modern-day leper in that sense. I mean, that's not who Jesus is. Jesus was very, very different than the idea of Christianity that I had built up in my head. And before I knew it, I gave my life to Christ. I submitted my life. I, I, I died to the world and gave my life to Christ, and I was baptized. And, and here's the funny thing. I went home. And I told my dad, I was living with him at the time, and I called my mom and I said, I'm a Christian now, and I get to tell all of us about Jesus. And they grounded me. A week later, I was at a youth conference, and I stepped forward, and I gave my life uh, to the ministry, and I went home, and my parents disowned me. They wanted to have nothing to do with me for a few months. But I didn't care, because I came to this point where I was so in love with Jesus and I knew that Jesus was different than the idea that my parents had in their head. Jesus does not treat people like projects. He loves people where they are. He answers questions. I mean, this is a God who loves you. How does God want us to treat other people? We talk as a church, and those of us who claim Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we say that we're to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind, and we're to love our neighbor as ourself. What does that look like? There, there are people that will say, Things like hate the sin, love the sinner. And that's right, but I wonder how that looks in the way we live out our lives. Does that make sense? The scripture says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and he who loves is born of God and knows God. He that loves not knows not God, for God is love. 1 John 4, 7, and 8. So, loving God, coming to know Christ, should impact how we love other people, how we treat other people, what we want for other people. People should understand that our understanding of God is that He is a God of great love and compassion. They should understand 
that, that we are for them against their sins, not against them because they sin. Did you get that? In other words, we're sinners, they're sinners, we need grace, we need to be saved, Jesus is the way. Amen? Now the question that I have for myself and for everybody here who claims Christ as our Lord and Savior, and if you don't claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you're here today, we're glad to have you here, and we'd love to tell you more about Jesus. Amen? But if we claim that Christ is the Lord and Savior of our life, then who are we loving that we wouldn't be loving if we didn't know Jesus? Does that make sense? Because we have these natural prejudices, we have these natural things. So who are, who's getting close to you in your life? Who are you loving and showing compassion to because Jesus is the Lord of your life? How is the love of Jesus overflowing out of you? We, we today will look at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And I would encourage you when you get home to read the whole chapter, Luke 10. You'll see how Jesus sent out the disciples. You'll see how they, they come back. You'll, you'll see how he, he talks about judgment and the judgment of God. You'll see how he talks about God revealing himself. hiding himself from the wise and learned and re revealing himself to small children. Then you'll see this parable uh, of the Good Samaritan we're going to talk about today. And, the, and then you'll see the, the story of, of Mary and Martha, which is important because if you look at the context, reminding us that in, in serving others, we don't lose sight of loving God and our devotion to him. But let's look at this story. If you, if you have your Bibles, look at Luke chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 25 through 37. If you have the YouVersion app, you can open it there where you can also find the sermon notes. You should also see on your connection card, there's some next steps to think about. It says in verse 25, and behold, a lawyer, a lawyer here, when they talk a lawyer, it would be an, excellent, an expert in the Mosaic law. Okay, we're not talking about like lawyer like, like we would think lawyer. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So why, what's he doing? He's trying to put Jesus to the... Sometimes people ask questions. They don't really want an answer for. They're trying, to, they're trying to get you gotcha questions, okay? Teacher, what should I do to, in, to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? In other words, you, you tell me what, what, what you see, what you believe. How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now, now the proper response here should be, help the Lord, I can't do that. I can't love God the way I'm supposed to. I can't love others the way I, I, I love my self. You, you see, self-love here isn't encouraged or condemned. It's just stated as, as that's what we do. We do love ourselves, right? When you're hungry, what do you do? Eat. When you're thirsty, you get something to drink. If you're cold, you get warm, right? It's not hard for us 
to find the motivation to find ourselves a coat when we're cold or to find something to eat when we're hungry. But it takes a spiritual work in us to begin to see other people and be concerned when they're hungry to get them food, especially if it costs us something, right? So, so it should be here, Lord, help me. But verse 29 says this, but he desiring to, did you catch this? To justify himself. Said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? I suspect in his mind he can think of some people he doesn't treat as he would want to be treated, but he tries to count them out. No, who's my neighbor? Who's, who's really my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. From Jerusalem to Jericho. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that journey. We'll pause here uh, and, and just put a pin here. We're going to come back here okay, and talk about that journey. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, so he's walking along, he sees them, and he skirts around them. Why? We don't, we don't know. There could be, you know, as we'll see, this is a, a long journey. You could think, I, I got places to go, I'm too busy to stop. It could have been being a priest, I don't want to defile myself, this guy might die, I can't touch a dead body, that would, that would defile me. What we, know, what we know is that he passed on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. So, these religious folks who should be concerned, they pass on the other side, maybe both con concerned about being defiled by a dead body. Now, now let me ask you this. Does our self-righteousness sometimes get in the way of reaching people for Jesus? More concerned about that we look righteous than we really love God and love people. Right? Then he says this, but a Samaritan. Now, in America, if you say the word Samaritan, the word association, first word that comes to your mind is good from the story, right? If, if you Google Good Samaritan, you'll get hospitals and, you know, I mean, we even have laws called the Good Samaritan laws. But we need to understand that there was hostility between the Jewish folks and the Samaritans. The Samaritan said, intermarried with the enemies of the Jewish folks, they'd had a bad history. Uh, the Jewish and, uh, and uh, the Samaritan people. We'll talk about that more later. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he, he took two, out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. 
And a denarius was about a day's wages. So he gave him about two days' wages. Right? Saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's get a picture of, of what Jesus is saying here. First of all, let's take a few, just a few pictures of the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. We see kind of a rough terrain, right? Next picture. And the distance that they travel here. Show you another, another, another picture. And I want to talk a little bit about this. We can show the next slide also. And I'm going to just talk a little bit about this, this road. Although Jericho is northeast of Jerusalem, travelers go down to Jericho. The historian Josephus in AD 37 to 93 explained that the first century road was approximately 18 miles long. So some of our kids went on a hike yesterday. And how long was the hike, guys? Four miles, okay? Try 18 miles, okay? And, and how much elevation did, did you go? How, how far up did you go? Do you remember? Nobody knows? Caleb, I think, told me 1,300, something like that, 1,200? What was it? I wrote it down here because I wanted to compare. About 1,200, right? I, I want you to, to know that you did 1,200 feet. The descent from Jerusalem, which was approximately 2,500 feet above sea level, to Jericho, which is somewhere around, around 825 feet below sea level. Think about that. 2,500, so over 3,300 feet. 18-mile trip. That's a, that's a long trip, right? If, if I told you today, hey, let's walk to lunch, and you said, where are we walking? And I said, Pike Place Market. Right? You might go, that's a long way. And, and that would be a piece of cake compared to this walk that they were doing. If you would have been on that walk, you, you would have seen dramatic changes as the slope encouraged the formation of what they call a rain shadow. While Jerusalem received about 20 inches of rainfall a year and experienced a Mediterranean climate, Jericho received only 8 inches of rain a year and was more African in its climatic orientation. In fact, Jericho was and remains an oasis situated in the midst of a desert. It would have been desert itself except for the presence of the water source commonly referred to as Elisha's spring. So the climate changes produced unique environmental markers. After the point along the journey where rainfall amounted to 16 inches annually, there was no more trees. After 
12 inches rainfall line, vegetation was reduced to just shrubs. And finally, at the eight inch level and beyond, only desert paints, uh, uh, I'm sorry, only desert plants form enough moisture to survive. And there was an ever, ever present threat of bandits. Archaeological evidence indicates that the Romans judged the, the roadway to be unsafe and posts were established along the route, most probably to attack, uh, I'm sorry, to act as protection against bandits. So this is, this is the road. Do you see it now a little bit? That's a long journey, right? It's a long journey. How long? About 18 miles. We're going from 2,500 feet in elevation down to about 825 below sea level. There's a lot of bandits in this area that take advantage of the open country. And, and you're, you're walking along and, and here you see somebody who's beaten half to death. What do you do? The Levite and the priest, they just skirt to the other side. The Samaritan gets down and helps. I suspect that Jesus' story probably irritated the people listening. Right? Because it'd be one thing if, if the person beaten was Samaritan, and he said, you should help, help the Samaritan. But he makes the hero of the story the Samaritan. We've already talked about th there was bad blood between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. In John 4, chapter 9, when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, it says, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You get that? And, and Jesus wasn't just saying, hey, whatever the Samaritans believe, that's okay. Jesus understood that some of the teaching of the Samaritans was incorrect. That's why he says in John chapter 4, verses 22 to 23, you worship what you do not know, we, are, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So, did you catch this? It's a long journey, there's, there's somebody, and the, the hero of the story is a Samaritan. The Samaritans have hostility towards, towards the Jewish people and some wrong beliefs. What would Jesus tell the parable today? What would it be? Would he be talking about the good Muslim? Would it be the good homosexual? I don't know. But the point is to be, there's a stirring here, isn't it? He was trying to get people to break down their labels. He wasn't saying, hey, anything goes, we never have to confront misteachings or misunderstandings or sin. He was talking about being cautious of how you see people. Don't see labels. See people. Look how God is working in their lives. That's his point. I had a seminary professor who told me that if you ever read the New Testament and you get to the point where what Jesus says never bothers you, you're either perfect or you're misreading the New Testament. There's always things that Jesus does that are a little unsettling, right? How does God want us to treat people? Well, let's bring these, let's get to our outline and let's, let's make these points. 
First, God wants us to love him, God, and to love people. Loving God should make us more loving towards people, right? I have never been asked by a coworker when I've worked outside the church, by, by a neighbor, by somebody on a bus or a plane to take a doctrinal exam. But, but even last night, it was at, at, as I was at a gathering, someone knew, outside the church, knew that I was a pastor and said they were watching me and then came over to talk to me, right? And you have those folks, they're looking at you and, 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 they, and they were, they, they were talking about some people in our church and saying, we see something in their life that's attractive to us, right? And and my friends, it's not going to be what word you use to refer refer to a pile of manure. That's not what's going to impress them. It's the love of Jesus flowing through you, right? Now, there's a couple mistakes we can make here. We can mistake loving people for loving what people think of us, right? So sometimes we have, to, we, we have to be willing to share things that they might not agree with or might upset them. We have to be willing to share that. And I hope you can stay for Sunday school because I'm going to talk about a, a, an interview I did on the church's position on homosexuality in response to some articles. Uh, one was in Newsweek and one was in another magazine that I wrote because I think it's important that we speak truth in love, Right? But loving God should impact how we love people. We could spend the rest of the day just reading the New Testament and all these examples of this. Second, God wants us to see the needs of others and to help them. What if every morning, every morning this week, and every week after this, we started our day on our knees and we said, Lord, Lord Jesus, search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in your way everlasting. And Lord, open my eyes today to the needs of those around me so that I might have an opportunity to love them as you would want me to love them, to care for them. And it doesn't matter if you're here, if you're 75 or you're seven, you can pray that prayer. Right? Narcissism, being self-focused, it's a disease that cripples us. Right? We're consumed with our own problems, our own insecurities, our own doubt. Let's get our eyes off ourselves and love as God wants us to love. And let's not be overwhelmed. Let's pray and say, God, what is it that you would want me to do today? Is there something I love more than you, Lord? Do I fill my schedule so full that that if a need presents itself, I don't have any time to help? Because I'm too busy, right? (laughs) Have you guys caught this before in your life? 
I mean, I've had something come up at home before. When I was preparing to do a, a, a seminar and teach on a Christian understanding of the family, and I don't have time for my own family because I'm teaching on it. Right? You can, you can get so busy training and getting ready to, to do a lesson on evangelism that you've lost any time to actually do evangelism. I, I skipped, uh, I actually realized that I skipped uh, point two, didn't I? Oh well. God wants us to love and love his people. Point two if you, was God wants us to treat people like people and to drop the labels. So you can revert the order if you want. I apologize for switching them up. I got excited there. But those points go together because you don't see needs if you only see labels, right? One of the things, uh, when, I, when I took my training in biblical counseling, they, they talk about a lot, is don't lose the person in the problem. You're not talking to an alcoholic or a drug abuser. You're talking to Jill or John or Jeff. You're not talking to a homosexual or a heterosexual. You're talking to Jim or Jenny. Hear their stories. Understand what's going on in their life. Pray for entry gates into their life. Sometimes that will mean praying, Lord, help, help me to love them more than I love what they think of me. And sometimes I've got to say some things they, they may not want to hear. But it should never be done without praying and, and seeking to be loving towards them. One of the reasons I'm kind of excited to do the, the grand giveaway is because I want people in the community to say, we're not here to take something from you, to demand something of you. We have something to give to you. Amen? Fourth point, God wants us to see that loving him should make us more helpful to others, not less. There was an episode of The Simpsons, and I actually didn't watch the episode, I only heard about it. It's, it's not on my watch list. But anyway, where he's talking, and, and they ask him about where the neighbor's son is, and he says he's off at Bible camp learning to be more judgmental. We need to help people see that, yes, we're called to be discerning. Yes, we're, we're called to make judgments. Even that statement is a judgment, right? But we're never called to be condescending, self-righteous people. We're never to group people. One of my frustrations is when we start labeling people and putting them in groups. If you've got this sin problem over here, if you've got this sin problem over here, if you've got this sin problem over here, come in, we all have a sin problem. 
We all need a Savior. Amen? Sins have different earthly consequences. We understand that. But we all have a sin problem. I'm going to talk about that more, but do, do you battle destructive d- desires in your life? Huh? Are, are there things you know you should stop doing that you're doing and you're having a hard time giving them up? Doesn't that cause us to cry out for Jesus? Don't we believe that he can change and make a difference in our lives? And shouldn't that, that, that change the way we treat other people? Let's never forget that what the Bible demands grace provides. Charles Spurgeon, on reflecting on this passage, said, I should not hold up the love of neighbor as a condition of salvation, but as the fruit of it. I shall not speak of obedience to the laws as the road to heaven, but I shall show you the pathway which is to be followed by the faith which works by love. We're talking about how you get saved. We're talking about that that when Jesus, the reason I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior and forgive me my, my sins is so I can love him more and love others more. Amen? You see, sin has broken my relationship with God and caused disharmony with those I'm meant to love. And Jesus has come to set me free from my sins. And I'm in that process. I've been declared righteous and I'm being made righteous and I'm praying for God's grace every day. We should be praying for God's grace every day. Not so we can have some self-righteousness where we don't do this and we don't do that, we don't do this, but that we... We do and don't do things that help show the love of Jesus to our neighbors and friends. Amen? The church doesn't become just somewhere we, we hide. This gathering isn't a hiding. It's a huddle to go out. To go out and say, you, you want... You might not understand this. You might not get my faith. But let me tell you, there's a delight that comes from having your sins forgiven. There's a delight in knowing and worshiping God that I wouldn't want to rob you of by being fearful to tell you the truth. There's there's this thing called sin, and there's lots of different ways it shows up. And and it may seem that it's it's good, and it's helpful, and you need it because of your suffering. But suffering isn't helped by sin. We have a Savior that can heal our wounds and bring us to a point of repentance that can turn us from our sins. And and I'm not putting myself on a pedestal. I'm putting Jesus there. And I want you to hear His name and lift His name high. And when we see people suffering as a result of the sins of others, we, we show compassion for them. When we see children who don't have food to eat because their father is getting drunk every night and their mother is getting drunk every night, we want them to see that we love them and we love their parents. We want to set them free from their drunkenness. We've got to open our eyes. They open our eyes. All around us are people who need to experience the love of Jesus. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. We're going to close our time together with some singing. We're going to talk about our love for Jesus. We're going to talk about the praise and glory going to God. And as we do, we we take a moment to take that connection card out and see what your next step of faith is. We are uniquely positioned here. Did you know that? Right here. I sat down in my office and began to pray that that, that God would continue to stir us that we might become a multi-generational, multicultural church Right here, right? Do you know that we have people here attending the church that have been born in at least 20 different nations? Right? The world is here. We have an opportunity to love. But you know, it's a lot easier to love people that are just like you and agree with you on everything, right? That's why we need to be on our knees. Help me love, Lord. Help me be less irritable and more open to sharing your truth. Let me see the way you're already working in people's lives. So often we start with where we disagree with people. Let's see how God's already working in their lives.